You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. It's great to have you here today. If we've not met before, uh, my name is Craig, and I am one of the pastors here. And it's just great to have you here with us today. We are just walking through a book in the New Testament called 1 Thessalonians. Uh, It's a letter that Paul wrote uh, to a church. He had gone and shared the good news of Jesus with them. Many had become Christians. Then he had to leave rather suddenly because of persecution. And now some months, probably less than a year later, he's writing them back a letter. And uh, today we're going to look at chapter 4, verses one through eight, uh, and it, the, uh, the theme of the passage for today is sex for new Christians, and the title's not provocative, it's not titillating. I just read this passage over and over and over this week. Friday morning said, what is this passage about? It's about sex for new Christians, and so this is the most descriptive title uh, that I can come up with. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. It's on, if you don't have a Bible, it's on the Bible, there's a Bible under the seat in front of you, and on page 574, uh, you can look and read along, and I'd recommend you do that, because then you'll be able to track sort of phrase by phrase um, as we go through the passage together. So, uh, I'm just going to read the text, and then I'm going to pray because uh, this is a sensitive subject and a personal subject, and and a subject that that doesn't uh, that doesn't come with a, the theme of sexual immorality does not come without a measure of pain for many of us in the room. So uh, I'm going to read the text, pray, and then we'll just walk straight through it. So uh, let's read together First Thessalonians chapter four. This is God's word. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is always true, always beautiful, always good, always true. And we pray that your word would have its way in our midst today, bringing conviction where necessary, bringing hope where necessary, bringing faith where necessary, Lord, uh, bringing life change where necessary for all of us. Lord, we pray that by your spirit and through your word, 
you would speak to us and change us to be the people you've called us to be, to live out the new life you've given us in Christ. And I pray that you would also speak to anyone in the room that does not know you, that today you might open their eyes to the beauty and the glory of your life, your provision in Christ, and your calling and design for our lives and for marriage. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this passage, there's really two big ideas. Uh, The first big idea is in verses 1 and 2, and it's the big idea that we are called to live a life that pleases God. The, the fundamental calling of the Christian is to no longer live to please oneself, but to live to please God. And then verses 3 through 8, the big idea kind of, I would say, I mean, certainly the strongest statement in there is to abstain from sexual immorality. So what he's saying to this, these new Christians is you are called to please God, which you're doing, he says, You're already doing this, but do it more and more. Please, God, grow more and more. That's his will for you, sanctification. So live that out. And one way that you could please God, and the the primary way that he opens right here, is by abstaining from sexual immorality. Now, maybe you are exploring the Christian faith, and you're not convinced, but you are open and learning. Uh, And when you read a passage like this, Um, you may say, hey, that's the kind of thing I've struggled with in the Christian faith. Because in the Christian faith, it seems like Christians are very hung up on sex. They have all these rules about sex, all these rules about what you can do, all these rules about who you can sleep with, all these rules about who you can love. There's all these sorts of rules, and I don't really get why Christians are so hung up on sex. Sex, why are all these rules present? And, and really, doesn't the passage I just read and the comments I just made about it, doesn't that just confirm every suspicion that maybe you brought, that God is hung up on sex, that God is obsessed with sex? And with these new Christians, the first thing he instructs them about is to avoid immorality. That's just what I thought, you may be thinking, uh, that pleasing God, the idea of pleasing God, there's a billion things that could be talked about, but where the Christians go is sexual immorality to start with. Maybe that's how you think about a passage like this, and that's understandable. Those are very good questions, actually. We should all be asking those questions. Why is it? that this is what Paul talks about. Well, I think to understand the reason, we have to go back to the beginning of the letter. And in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you. Paul's saying, people are talking about how you received us, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. So, Paul starts off and says, the big news about you Thessalonians is that you turned from idols and you turned to serve Jesus Christ. They were a culture, Thessalonica is in what would be kind of ancient, in a province of ancient Greece, and they lived in a world of idolatry. And so he's saying to them, you, when you first heard the message about Jesus, the message of Jesus was foreign to them. They had never heard about this until Paul came and told them. He was a missionary. 
And when you first heard this message, you abandoned the religion of your Greek culture. You abandoned this pantheon of gods that you worshipped, and you turned from all those gods, and you turned to the one true and living God, Jesus Christ. Now, an idol, he says they turned from idols, which for them could have been statues or um, various other uh, images of gods, multiple gods. But an idol really doesn't have to be a statue. An idol is just any uh, anything that is a substitute for God. It, uh, an idol is something that we, that we trust in in place of God. And just as the God of the Bible provides a narrative for the meaning of life, just as the God of the Bible and the Scripture gives us a vision for the good life, so do idols. Idols make promises about what life is all about and what indeed is the good life. And if you lived in first century Thessalonica, uh, if that's where you lived, the good life included a liberal approach to sexual freedom. By liberal, I mean free. A, a, A liberal approach where just about all sexual practices were celebrated. So they came in a culture, they come from a culture where there is an idolatry, where life is in part largely about sexual promiscuity. And while we live in a culture too that arguably celebrates all type of sexual practices, uh, we live in a culture that bows to the idol of sexual fulfillment. That is that sexual fulfillment is a place that people go to find real life, to find the good life. Uh, these people went further because many of their temples to God, you, you find this written about in Corinth, which is another Greek city. Paul's writing this letter from Corinth. And in Corinth, another Greek city, you, you find this spelled out a little bit more than you do in, in this letter. But you find out that their temples included male and female prostitutes. And so that part of the worship experience when you made sacrifices or worshipped various idols, was sexual encounters with the temple prostitutes. And uh, so their temples were functional brothels. So they went beyond where sexual license is celebrated, sexual freedom is celebrated in our country, certainly in an increasing way from the 1960s. In their culture, they went further. It was tied literally to idolatry. It was actually tied to uh, to sexual uh, to their worship was tied to sexual practice in and of itself, but they had turned. So what Paul says is, you turned from your culture, you turned from these various idols, you turned from the promiscuous life, you turned from all the empty promises that the gods of sex and pleasure made to you. Jesus rescued you from that, so now that you know God and you're called to a higher purpose, which is pleasing God, that's what it says here, pleasing God in all of life. This this is why he addresses this, because anyone who comes to Christ must turn from old ways and enter into new ways. We we, We turn from our own personal idols, and oftentimes we're called to turn from the idols of our culture. And the American culture is filled with as many idols as was first century Thessalonica. And for them, what permeated the social society, what permeated religious life was sexual 
promiscuity. And thus, when he says you're now to live a new life, not the life of idolatry, it would be very natural that this would be the first topic that he would address. Now, this passage isn't about just sort of a list of do's and don'ts. It's really about an entirely new orientation to life. This is what he says, verse 1, brothers and sisters, the, the word means brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing that you do so more and more. So the context is you turn from idols and now you're living this new life, a life of pleasing Jesus. And look at the language he uses. We urged you in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord means king. So we urged you in the king, Jesus. And at the end of that phrase, he says, for you know, uh, verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the king, Jesus. So he's making all of these kind of images. He's not saying, don't you remember you signed up for a whole new list of do's and don'ts? Don't you remember when we came and told you the gospel, we rolled out all the rules for all of life. That's not what he says. He says, we urged you in the king, through the king. Coming to Jesus means you embrace a new king. It means you are part of a new kingdom. It means you live in a new realm. It means you're part of a new society. It means you have a new community. You're coming out of one world and into another, out of one existence, into another. This is the context. And now you're in this world where you have this new life. You know the God who created you. You know the God who sent his son to die for you and rise for you to give you new life. And now you are called to live out that new life, which is a radical break with the old. It's a radical break with the old life. It's not just sort of self-improvement. It's moving from death to life. It's completely turning away from all of the old idols. And now they're called to live a new life, no longer dominated by unregulated sex. They're now called to please God with their new life through living a life of sexual holiness, we could say. That phrase isn't in the text, but sex is and holiness is throughout the passage. He says, this is God's plan for you. It's sanctification. Do you see that in verse 3? This is the will of God. So now you're living this new life. You're in Christ. You're called to please God, not please yourself. And this is God's will for your life. Sanctification. It's a big theological word. What does it mean? It just means to be more like Jesus. Sanctification is the process of growing to become more and more like Jesus. So now you're in Jesus, Jesus is in you, and your life goal is to please God by allowing the Spirit to change you so that your life is more loving, more wonderful, more serving, more gracious, more holy like Jesus. That is the plan. And in their context, with their background, with their lifestyle, with their baggage, that meant abstaining from sexual immorality. And it may mean the exact, you may come from the exact same background. You may be living in that world right now, as a matter of fact. And the text has something wonderful to say to you if that's the case. So because of their context, he starts here and he says, now you live this new life. You're called to grow and be more like Jesus. And what's that going to look like 
that you abstain from sexual immorality. Well, what is sexual immorality? Sexual immorality um, is, is a translation of the Greek word porneia, which means, uh, well, we get the word pornography from it, but it means all sexual activity. If you look at the scripture, sexual immorality is all sexual activity that occurs outside of marriage between one man and one woman. That's the biblical view of sexual immorality. It's all, all sexual activity that occurs outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. God creates the sexual relationship to be enjoyed, to be experienced. He creates it as an experience of, of unity and enjoyment in a loving marriage covenant. And in this passage, he's contrasting sexual holiness with sexual immorality. So he says you are to, uh, this is God's will, it's your sanctification, which means growth and holiness, to be more like Jesus. And he goes on to say, uh, verse 4, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So he's making this contrast. The Gentile people who do not know God often give themselves, certainly in this culture, gave themselves to sexual passion, uh, unrestrained, uh, largely unregulated sexual passion. He's saying you're called to a sexual holiness, which means a self-control that calls you to live according to what would be pleasing to God, God's standard for your sexual relationship. You are to be separate. You are to be set apart. And this shows really the beauty of holiness and sexual holiness in particular. Because God designed sex to be set apart as the most intimate act a married couple can experience. God does that not so that people will be deprived, but so that people will be fulfilled. That's his purpose. See, our culture, and probably truthfully, many of us totally misunderstand the word holiness. I mean, Jesus is the ultimate in holiness. And he is glorious and lovely and beautiful and good. Holiness is a good word. It means to be separate. It means to be set apart. God is holy and his people are called to be holy. It means to be like Jesus. When he says control your body in holiness and honor, he's not describing some weird sort of crazy ascetic lifestyle where people are just living, you know, and enjoying some, somehow enjoying, uh, you know, self-denial and deprivation that life is about suffering and we're going to suffer and it's going to be painful and we're going to hate it, but that's what God has called us to. When we read the word holiness, what it means is that is living all of life the way God designed it. That's holy. It's to be separate. It's to be different. It's to be like God. The world is not living how God designed it. The world in every area is broken. Nobody would dispute that. The world is broken, but to be holy is to live in the power of Christ a different life the way God designed it to be lived. So when you read the word holy or like this, holiness, control your body in holiness, when you read holiness, this should be the kind of words that pop into your mind. Thriving. Flourishing. Holiness is abundance. 
It's an, it's an intense joy that can only be experienced through knowing the holy God of the universe. Holiness is wholeness. It's soundness. It's spiritual health. Holiness is clean, bright life in its healthiest, purest form. It's the glory of life the way it was created to be. On the other hand, here's what you should be thinking when you think of the word sexual immorality. It is about decay, emptiness, darkness. It's not an abundance of flourishing life. It's a shriveling of life. It's an unfulfilled heart chasing empty dreams. That's what he calls it, the passion of lust is the, like the Gentiles who do not know God. The Gentiles don't know the reality of life. They don't know why they're on this planet. They don't know what their purpose is. So they're chasing dreams of fulfillment. And they're chasing the passions of lust. I love the definition that one person gave of lust. He said, or she said, I don't remember who said it. They said, Lust is a person dying of thirst who is drinking salt water. That's lust. It promises that it will quench your heart and fulfill you. And it is a mirage. It is a lie. It will cheat and steal and leave you spiritually dead. That's why they are not to give themselves over to the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Jesus came and rescued them from a godless, empty life. And so he's saying to them, look, you don't want to go back to the emptiness of idolatry. I pulled you out of that nonsense. I rescued you from that darkness. I brought you through that. You were under the power of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You were dominated by darkness. But I brought you into a new kingdom, a kingdom of life. Why would you want to go back? And they're not going back. He's saying, you're, you need to just, you're, you're already pleasing God. Just do this more and more. I think one of the greatest weaknesses for, for me and in the church today is we do not have a robust, healthy view of holiness. It's something we're almost embarrassed to talk about in the church. Oh, the pastor's going to talk about holiness. Don't invite anybody to that. That's going to be about, I mean, I grew up like holiness was a denomination. I don't know. I don't know anything about it, but people talked about holiness. That's like you couldn't wear makeup or cut your hair. You had to wear, ladies had to wear a dress. Dudes had to wear a suit. I don't know. But it was just a bunch of external things. Well, of course, nobody wants to be a part of some kind of external, legalistic, prove yourself to God and others religion. But holiness set apart to God, experiencing the flourishing of life, empowered by the Spirit the way it was meant to be, who wouldn't want that? There's something fearful about holiness because we're sinful. So we sang today, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. There's something fearful about the holiness of God, but in Christ we're welcomed into his presence, loved by the Father of holiness we got to recover the word holy. we got to recover the word holiness to its biblical norms and not sell out and let the, allow the culture to define what real life is and what holiness is. We need to stand up and own this word. For God, it's the only adjective that is used of God three times in the Bible. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Scripture says. It never says grace, 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 love, love, love. It's holy, holy, holy. He is other than. He is separate. He is glorious. He is everything. And he has rescued us 
from death. He's called us to live a better story. That's in all of life, including our sexuality. He's called us to live a better story, a clean break with the old life. They lived in a world that was filled with promiscuity. But like most promiscuous cultures, the Greco-Roman culture of Thessalonica, like most promiscuous cultures, it was designed to fulfill the passions of men. This is always the way it is in promiscuous cultures, or usually the way it is. I mean, maybe you can raise a culture where this isn't true, so I won't say absolutely. But generally, promiscuous cultures almost always advantage males and disadvantage females. This is why we have the Me Too movement. It is because promiscuous culture always elevates male sexuality at the expense of female sexuality. It happened in their culture and it happens today. This is what the Greek philosopher, and they would have been a city with Greek philosophy, this is what the Greek philosopher Demosthenes said, a male, we keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day bodily needs, but we have wives to produce legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians of our homes. There's a lot of American males that say, that, that sounds to me like paradise. Put me back in Thessalonica. That's what he's saying. Hey, we have mistresses for sexual pleasure. We have concubines, or in their day, if you had money, it would be slaves. We have slaves for day-to-day sexual bodily needs, and we have wives uh, to procreate with and to have a stable home, all oriented to a man's sexuality. He had rescued these new believers from such a dehumanizing context. It was simply accepted that any married man would Any married man would would be free to have a mistress. A mistress is someone that he could romance. A mistress is someone that maybe he could could be intellectually stimulating to him. A mistress would be someone that he would experience sexual pleasure with. Slaves, uh, both male and female, could be used by their owner sexually however they pleased. It also was not uncommon. It also was not uncommon for Greek men to have sex with adolescent boys. The philosophers taught this, that the ideal image of beauty in that culture was a young adolescent male. The shape and the form of a young adolescent male was the ideal form of beauty in most of Greek culture. And so adult men uh, often, as a rite of passage, had sex with young teenage boys. All of this is passionate lust of the Gentiles who do not know God, who take the gift of sex as something uh, to consume, consume other people for one's own pleasure. Lust treats people as objects to be consumed. And today they may be digital objects as well as living objects. Biblical love, on the other hand, sexual holiness, on the other hand, honors people as created in the image of God and limits the most intimate act, the most intimate exposure of the most intimate parts of the human body and the most intimate expression of the human soul for the most intimate relationship, marriage. 
as opposed to taking all of these intimacies and squandering them, so to speak, freely for one's own selfish gain. These new believers have received a new life, and they are called to break with the past and no longer live as those who don't know God. At one level, it's understandable. The Gentiles are chasing idols. They're empty. They are chasing whatever brings relief in life, whatever brings pleasure in life, whatever brings some moment of significance or some high or some escape, some power. It was a lot about power in that culture. Sex was an expression of power and who one had power over. That was very common in their world. But now that they're Christians, they're called to love their neighbor, not lust after their neighbor. They're called to love their neighbor. Look at verse 6. This is what he says. Not in the passion, I'm sorry, 5, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Verse 6, that no one transgress, that's just a Bible word that means sin, that no one sin and wrong his brother in this matter. And the word brother means brother or sister. It's inclusive. Almost always when you see that in the New Testament, it's inclusive. So let no one wrong a brother or sister. Now, what he may mean by that is some of the practices from the old life, these are new believers, new Christians. It would be understandable that they're just figuring it out, that they're just learning that you, we all bring all of our life. Even though we're declared righteous and the Spirit lives in us and we're new, we still have a lifetime to grow in holiness. So we bring into the new Christian life, we bring into the Christian community much that looks like the old life. And so it could be that someone's actually taking advantage of a brother or sister. Don't sin against your brother in this matter. In what matter? In the passionate lust of the Gentiles. So don't, don't uh, sexual immorality. So it could be that someone's in the church. They've come into the church. They still have a slave. They're still having sex with a slave. It could be someone comes in the church. They still have a mistress. Uh, I don't know. But, but they're saying don't sin against one another. The, the bigger idea on that is that our actions of sin affect and harm other people. Sexual sin harms other people. Lust harms other people as we view people ultimately in a dehumanizing, objectifying sort of way. So it's not only a sin against God, but immorality is a sin against others. Actually, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says it's a sin against one's own body, but it's a sin against others. The God of Scripture created sex as pleasurable and unifying as an intimate act in marriage to unify. God is very sex positive, very sex positive. And if God created sex, if you are exploring the Christian faith, wouldn't you want to know the God that created sex, who thought it up and wired us as sexual beings? He even devotes an entire book of the Scripture to sexual pleasure. Uh, which is the book of Song of Songs. So he is for sex, but sex is so powerful that God directs sex for ultimate fulfillment in a marriage, ultimate building of the one flesh relationship of a couple, and to guard from the harm of others. When sex is sort of, we could say, used as directed, sex is glorious. It's even 
transcendent. A transcendent, unifying experience between two people in a covenant marriage called together, expressing that for the glory of God and for the enjoyment of their spouse. It's a transcendent experience. God's way is not restriction aimed at ruining, ruining people's lives, but it's a protection to maximize people's closeness and intimacy and enjoyment in the relationship of the covenant of marriage. And it's to protect others from harm, which is why he says, do not wrong your brother or sister in the manner uh, in the matter of sexual immorality, in the matter of lust. Do not wrong others. Our culture, the pornography worldview, and it is a worldview, our culture places sex in such a way that it seeks to demean what I'm saying, what the Bible teaches, sex as a gift in marriage. It demeans that mindset, and it holds out instead sort of a buffet of options of pleasure of people with the promise that there is no, if you use protection, there is no harm. There is no harm. And I just was going through my mind and thinking about when it says don't wrong your brother God, or your sister, God not only loves you, but God loves others. And he wants you to take the gift that he has given you uh, in a way that you don't harm other people. And there is so much harm and so much collateral damage, we could say, which is a way of just saying someone who's not directly involved but is harmed by actions of sexual immorality. I was just going in my mind today and thinking about someone who says, well, there's no pain. You're free to do what you want. In the Greek culture, you could do whatever you want, especially if you're a male. There, there's no pain, no harm, no foul. That's just a deception. When he says don't harm another, don't wrong another, it's because you really can wrong another through sexual immorality. Think about all the pain and suffering. Think about the pain of a husband whose wife betrays him by having sex with another man. I'm, I'm pointing this out, not that anybody feel guilty. I'm not trying to heap condemnation on people. I'm trying to appropriately warn and, and paint a picture of how God loves people and protects us and protects others. And doesn't want us to harm others. Think about the pain of the husband whose wife betrays him by having sex with another man. And ask him what he thinks about sexual freedom and the joy of it. What about the pain of a wife whose husband is addicted to pornography and the suffering and rejection that she daily experiences? Ask her what her thoughts are about sexual freedom, not to mention the suffering of the objectified person in pornography, who usually is forced into that circumstance, oftentimes for some reason, not to mention the suffering of that individual. What about the pain of a woman who is abused by a man, who rapes her, takes advantage of her? Or maybe it's not rape, but still harmful. The pain of a woman who experiences a man making uninvited sexual comments to her, verbally or digitally, texting, that sort of thing. A man who persists in unwanted sexual advances towards her. Ask her if she'd prefer God's standards of respect and honor. God's design is beautiful. It is dignifying. It is honoring. 
The culture says it is backward and restricting, but the truth is, look at the damage of people. It is dignifying to people. God calls us to treat other people as image bearers with inherent value who are to be respected and not used. Ask about the pain of a woman who is taken advantage of by a man who uses his position or his authority or his power to coerce her into a sexual relationship that she does not want. Ask any person, and there's many in our church, who've suffered the pain of sexual abuse as a child. Ask them who struggle throughout his or her life with the devastation that that brings. Ask them if unrestrained sexual activity brings harm. Ask the child, think about the pain of the child who misses his father because dad ran off with a more enticing, appealing woman. The pain of emptiness and depression for the promiscuous person who uses sex to feel closeness and intimacy only to end up feeling more and more isolated and disconnected after each hookup. I read an article recently, and it was interviewing college-aged women who were part of the hookup culture, uh, just sleeping with people you don't know. And one, one of the gals was just saying, I'm, I want to feel close and to feel loved, but I just feel, uh, these were the kind of words she was using, isolated, disconnected. It wasn't producing what it was promising. What about the pain of the person who has a distorted view of God? Because a church leader or a professing Christian has taken advantage of them sexually, abused them. And now they wrestle with what God is like because one who represented God to them has abused them. What about the pain of a newly married couple? for whom sexual intimacy is so difficult because one or both spouses arrive at the marriage with years and years and years of porn consumption and the porn worldview of selfish sex, it destroys intimacy. And so they, have, they, they come together and they just feel in a deficit. And there's tremendous hope for them in the gospel. But they feel such a deficit, such a difficulty because the biblical view centers on loving and giving to others, and thus it deepens a one-flesh relationship rather than taking from others selfishly, which destroys intimacy. The passage says that we're to be holy, which means set apart, set apart and different. And the truth is, well, often we're just not. We're all sexually broken people. There's not a person in the room that's not a sexual sinner, at least in heart. At least in heart. We're called to be different, but the reality is that lust and immorality are not strangers in the church and probably not strangers in Thessalonica. Paul said in chapter 3, I can't wait to see you to complete what's lacking in your faith. So you're doing great. You love Jesus. You love us. But there's some, there are issues is what he says. Could be this is one of those issues. Verse 6 says, don't sin against your brother. We all 
struggle sexually, but the good news is the gospel rescues us. The gospel rescues us and frees us, or it's intended to free us from the dead-end pathway of the cultural idols. You don't have to be, I don't have to be on the dead-end pathway of sexual devastation in life. God comes and rescues and turns you around and puts you on a different pathway. And that's good news. God doesn't just give you new rules. He gives you a new life. God doesn't give you new standards. He gives you a new heart. God doesn't bring you just into church. He brings you from death to life. God doesn't just say grit your teeth. He gives you the Holy Spirit. God doesn't hold you uh, under permanent penalty or condemn you for your sexual sin. He gives you forgiveness and declares you righteous and welcomes you into his presence. This is the glorious good news. There is good news for sexual sinners, which means there is good news for every person in this room in Jesus Christ. But we must wake up. The reason I'm speaking as firmly about this as I am is because we must wake up to the deception of the culture, which lies nonstop. It's constant. It's on the Internet. It's in print publications. Uh, it's, in, it's on the radio and the television. It's wherever you go. It's the people you work with talking about what really matters. It's everywhere. It's inescapable. We're in a sex-saturated world, and sex is a good thing, but we're being sold that it's only good in an unrestrained, free expression. And we're pressed back, we're challenged, we're, 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 we're sometimes even hated for holding a standard that a good God gave sex for marriage. And he welcomes and forgives those who've broken his law, because we all have, at least in heart. So we need to be clear on this, and we need to stand strong against the lies that we all can give into so easily. Lust never delivers what it promises. And because God loves us enough to, for us to know that, he closes with a warning, or his second to last point's a warning. Look at verse 6, that no one transgress uh, and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. Okay, here's what he's saying. Guys, you were freed from condemnation. You were freed from judgment. You were freed from going down the highway to hell, literally. You were freed from all that. You were put this direction, given a new life. Don't go back there. That God will judge that. Sexual sin. Don't go that direction. And anybody who wants to dispute this and say, I can do what I want to do sexually, it doesn't matter. I will be the author of my own sexual ethic. Okay, that's fine. You have the freedom to do it. It's not really fine, but you have the freedom to do that. But what he says here is, whoever disregards this, abstain from sexual immorality. Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Paul is saying, with this scripture, you don't, you're not disagreeing with me. You're not disagreeing with the church. You're not disagreeing with evangelicals at large, whatever they believe anymore. That, that's, a, that's a moving target. But you're not, you're not just disagreeing with some. You're disregarding God Almighty who spells this out in clarity because he loves you, because he wants your best for eternity, and because he wants your best now that you not be the thirsty person drinking salt water, but you be the person flourishing 
by God's presence and power. Now, here's the really good news. He doesn't end with a warning. He ends with a promise. Verse 8, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He ends with a promise. He starts off saying, you're called to please God. And by the way, Thessalonians, uh, you're doing a great job with that. Just keep it up. That's what he says. And he ends with, God's giving you the Holy Spirit. God's giving you, you're not, you don't have an empty soul. You're not, you're not called to existential angst because you have no reason or purpose and the universe is meaningless. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. As believers in Jesus, God himself has come to live in you. And that makes all the difference. At least it should, wouldn't you say? That makes all the difference. He gives a sober, sober warning, but he closes with this promise that the Holy Spirit will give you, what does the Holy Spirit do? He convicts. He gives new desires. He transforms us from the inside. He makes what used to be distasteful to us a treasure. He makes what we used to hate what we now love, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit he's given to you. The Holy Spirit makes us new. The Holy Spirit makes all things new, including our sex lives couple of applications and we're out of here. Here's the big application. Receive the Holy Spirit's power for change. Who gives the Holy Spirit to you? Well, I've tried everything. Well, here's something to try. Come, Spirit of God. I welcome you. I surrender to you. I'm putting myself under your word to read your word, to speak to me, Spirit of God. Spirit of God, work in me. He doesn't say just get a list of do's and don'ts. We need the Spirit transforming our hearts. What We don't need new rules. I think we know the rules. We need new thoughts. We need new desires. We need new impulses. We need to be the new people that he's called us to be. We need a new hope. And that comes from the Holy Spirit. God gives the Holy Spirit to you. It might be the most important phrase in the whole passage. I mean, I don't think, I don't know if you can rank verses. I, I don't know. The, the Lord might not even like that I'm saying that. So I don't, scratch that. I don't know if you can do that. But I can say what stands out to me and gives me life is that verse. Because I know I'm a sexual sinner and I know I struggle and I know I wrestle and I know I can get discouraged. So when I read that, it gives me a ton of hope. Who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God has made me new and he's with me. He's in me. He's changing me. What can the Holy Spirit do in us? Well, here's a couple things. I'm probably going a little bit long here, but what I found in 20-something years of preaching, if I'm talking about sex, I can preach longer. That's what I've learned over the years and nobody leaves. <clears throat> if I'm talking about some things people have done, we did a series on sex a number of years ago. They were most, mostly 45-minute sermons. I think one of them was like an hour and a half, and nobody moved. I thought, okay, well, I'm not doing that here today. But, uh, <clears throat> okay, all the junior high kids were listening. It was amazing. Okay, contented, okay, what does the Holy Spirit do? First of all, I believe the Holy Spirit can bring contentment to a single person. Easy for you to say, Greg, you're married. Listen, there's plenty of married people that aren't content. Married people are chasing people they're not married to and looking at pornography as much as singles are, I'd imagine. So just because you're married doesn't mean you're sexually content. But God, by the Holy Spirit, can bring contentment. 
If you're not married, you're called to a relational, rich, and meaningful life without sex with a partner until you are, there's no sex before marriage. So you're called to that before, uh, before marriage, but the Holy Spirit can give you the fruit of joy, the fruit of self-control. This is what the Bible says. The Holy Spirit lives in you. What does he do? He grows fruit. What are those fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience. Maybe you learned songs as a kid. But he gives the fruit of self-control. How do you get self-control? Grit your teeth, get a new plan. No, the Holy Spirit gives you self-control. How do you get joy? My circumstances are bad. How can I have joy? The Holy Spirit produces joy in us. So he gives us the fruit of joy, the fruit of self-control. And listen, the cultural idol is if you're not sexually fulfilled, you're not fulfilled. That's a lie. Here's the church idol. Because the church is really good at idolatry sometimes. Here's the church idol. If you're not married and don't have a family, you're not fulfilled. Wow, Jesus wasn't fulfilled. Paul wasn't fulfilled under those standards. Paul said it's better to be single, is what he said, 1 Corinthians. We need to highlight and we need to honor and recapture the value of holiness. We need to honor and recapture the value of the single life as well. It's dignified. It has honor. It has purpose. It's a calling from the Lord. Now, you may just be single temporarily, and you're going to be married. But we need to shut down those idols that if you're not having sex, you're not fulfilled. Uh, Just look at the stats. Plain people having sex, not fulfilled in their lives. Uh, And also, if you're not married in the church, if you're not married, don't have family, not fulfilled. God's plan is this, whatever station he's called you to, serve him and please him in that station. He gives you the Holy Spirit to empower you to do that. Plenty of people in the room have circumstances they wouldn't pick. Most of us probably. We all suffer, but God gives us the Holy Spirit, and the single life is not a call to suffer. It's primarily a call to be, to be content. It's a station that God can use you uh, in meaningful ways. So the Holy Spirit gives contentment. The Holy Spirit gives conviction and hope as well for married and single people. Some of us need conviction. We have hard hearts. We've bought into the culture. We buy the cultural's lies, and we need the Holy Spirit to wake us up and say, you're on the wrong path. You are, by, you are thirsty, and you're pouring glasses of salt water. Stop it. You're, you're, you're going the wrong direction. We need conviction. This is dishonoring to the Lord. It's dishonoring to others. It's dishonoring to ourselves. Others of us are so guilty, so tied up, so defeated, we need hope. We need the Holy Spirit to give hope, the promise of freedom, the new change. We need the Holy Spirit to to assure us that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You, You have to get secure in that truth before you may have real life change. There is no condemnation in Christ. God is changing me. So some of us have hard hearts. Some of us have defeated hearts. All of us need the Holy Spirit for our heart. He provides a new way to live strengthened by his word, his spirit, and his people. So these all have C's. There were no points in the whole sermon. I just rambled the whole sermon. But in the application, there are C's. Contentment, the Holy Spirit brings contentment. The Holy Spirit brings conviction and hope. The Holy Spirit brings community to help us walk in holy sexuality. You will not make it alone. This is what I know from my own life and from sitting in a pastoral counseling room and at coffee shops, and in small groups, and meeting with people for 40 years. No, maybe not that long, not, not quite that long, but 30-something years. This is what I know. No one makes it alone in this issue, with this issue in particular. There's a shame and a darkness and a secretiveness to this that the enemy brings that keeps people, you and me, trapped. But God calls us into community. That's what I love about this. Paul's opening this one right up in his first letter to this new church. 
hey, new church, let's talk about sex right now and the immorality of the culture that you've been called out of. Let's discuss that. So I'm assuming they talked about that community group. They talked about Paul's letter, you know. <laughs> we are. Um, so ask for help. You will not make it alone. If you're a young person and you are struggling, let me just say, if you're a young person, you're likely struggling. If you're not, that's wonderful. Praise God. But many of us as young people struggled. I did. I'm not a young person anymore, but when I was, I did. If you're struggling, get help. What you think is unthinkable to open up and talk about, you will find that if you open up and talk about it, you will find the power of God helping you and you will find the help of God's people. To talk to your parents or talk to one of the youth leaders at the square as a starting point. But if you're struggling with lust, porn, maybe you've got a secret relationship as a young person that that, that nobody knows about or at least your parents don't. Maybe you're struggling with same-sex attraction. Maybe you're stu- wrestling with questions about your gender, your gender identity, these sorts of things. There is help available in all of those and more. You just have to ask. Adults, we have to open up with a trusted friend, invite help. If you're really struggling, you say, man, I'm, I'm trapped. We actually have specific groups that we've done, that we've provided help for. We call them freedom groups. Here's how you can get in a freedom group. If you're interested and you are a man, you can email Caleb. She's one of our pastors. If you are a woman, you can, in, you can uh, email Lorianne Bailey. Uh, she is a biblical counselor and has served countless women in our church, faithfully counseling and caring for ladies, and uh, has quite a bit of experience in serving uh, ladies who struggle in this. So if you struggle, particularly these groups have been formed to struggle, struggling around various sexual sins, largely pornography, men and women struggling in that area, but you, you can email them privately. They'll get back with you and let you know when the next group is starting. Invite help. Uh, if you are married, if you are married, um, you just should go to re-engage. I can't really give extra biblical laws and rules, so this is not a law or rule, but it is a strong recommendation. If you've not been through re-engage, you need to be in the room in January when it starts. Why? Because most sexual challenges, are, some are physical. Most, mo- many are not physical, though. Many challenges in physical intimacy stem from brokenness in relational intimacy. And it's not always the case, but usually get the relational intimacy right and the sexual intimacy follows. And, and it's not a class on sexual intimacy. I mean, they talk about it there, but that's not the primary purpose of the class. It's about relational intimacy. And uh, it's about growing and building in the oneness God has called you to, which is a guard against brokenness, the, the, bro- the shattering brokenness that comes from going the other way. Listen, we all need help. Let's close with this. Now I've gone way over. I just looked at the clock. Wow. We all need help. We're all sexually broken. The gospel forgives and empowers and changes us. God provides the word, the Holy Spirit within us, and his community around us to help us avoid the emptiness of the culture. And our culture is not exactly like first century culture in Thessalonica, but there are some scary similarities. And the reality is that none of us, none of us grow alone. We all need others. Reach out today and find how the Lord might meet you through his word, through his spirit, 
through a trusted friend, um, through a counselor, through a pastor, through someone who can come alongside you and help you. God has a good and glorious plan. Holy is good. God's declared us holy, and he's making us more and more holy, slowly, little by little, and we're on this journey together. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.